The uh, title, as you could probably guess if you were watching closely enough when the screen was on, <laughs> is uh, Why We Need the Wilderness. And uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. The Gospel of Mark is a, is a fascinating book and... Uh, I think one of the first documents of the New Testament written. Mark is a man of action and he hits the ground running. Immediately is one of his favorite words, kaiuthus, and immediately, uh, which I, I think uh, in kind of a Texas drawl would be uh, spelled N apostrophe, N apostrophe, and then. <laughs> And this is the way uh, Mark goes about uh, telling his story. So he immediately jumps to the ground and starts running with it. He begins uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the beginning of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the theme that comes up over and over again in these first 15 verses is the theme of wilderness. The road to freedom leads through the wilderness. Israel learned this when God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He displayed His power in a way that had never been seen before and wasn't seen much since then. As a matter of fact, most of the prophets of the Old Testament look forward to the future in terms of the past, in terms of God's deliverance of Israel in the Exodus. So the wilderness is the stage on which God enacts His greatest work. And we need the wilderness in our lives. It's going to appear here in our passage. Both John and Jesus will be there. We need the wilderness in our lives to separate us from our everyday concerns and distractions that hinder our spiritual growth. When you're in the wilderness, you're stripped of everything that distracts you. You're stripped of everything that you're leaning on and you can't take anything for granted in the wilderness. Wilderness means that we must depend totally on God's provision and are keenly aware of it in that hostile environment. God wants us in the position of the wilderness because He gives us a choice. Either we will humble ourselves and go to the wilderness or He will come to us and make our world a wilderness. We'll see that as this, this passage unfolds. Let's have a look at the passage uh, itself. Verses 1 to 15 of the Gospel of Mark are framed by the word gospel. You notice he begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It ends with Jesus preaching the gospel. Now, in between, we find two men, Jesus and John. John is in verses 2 through 8, and Jesus in verses 9 to 15. Now, John is preaching, and so is Jesus. And John preaches a message of repentance, and so does Jesus. Do you think he means to connect the two? <laughs> of course. 
so uh, John the Baptist from 2 to 18 and Jesus from 9 to 15. So having seen the structure of the passage, we can understand what Mark is doing with this word gospel. That begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark surprises us by calling his work the gospel. It's good news. Everyone, everyone has probably heard that the word gospel means good news. Comes to us by way of our Anglo-Saxon roots of the of the English language, Godspell, meaning good news, or good spell, meaning good news. But the Roman word, or the Greek word for gospel that's used in the Greco-Roman world, had a lot to do with victory in battle. The announcement you would make when your forces were uh, victorious on the field of battle. Sometimes you'd still make that same announcement even when your forces weren't victorious on the field of battle um, to keep morale high at home. I'm glad people have stopped doing that in the modern world. Um, but Imperial Rome, when in Imperial Rome, the word gospel takes on an even more important and heavy uh, political and slash religious, see there's no separation between religion and politics in the Roman world. Uh, the gospel, the word gospel, takes on a more, uh, to you and me, sinister feel because it is a propaganda tool in Roman literature to make you worship the emperor. Here's Augustus. And his power is displayed in, his, in what he's wearing. He's, he's the one who provides victory. And he is the one who provides power. He is the one who gives you good news that he's the one in control. So the word gospel in Greco-Roman thinking is a propaganda tool. It means the emperor is the guy who brings you salvation and brings you good news. So Mark takes this term gospel and turns it on its ear and says, Caesar isn't the guy who has the good news, it's Jesus. So if you were, to, if you were a Greco-Roman audience, Mark wrote his book ostensibly to reach uh, people in Rome. If you read this and said the beginning of the gospel of, and then the next thing you read is Jesus Christ, you're surprised. And then he says, he's the Son of God. See, the Romans had a view of history and their place in it. And they said, we are the ones who have established peace on the earth. No, they hadn't. Roads, maybe, but not peace. The gospel for us as Christians is the real good news of a son of God who announces a victory of his own by dying and leaving an empty tomb. 
The word gospel means far more than, than good news. It means that Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan for human history. He is the guy who God is going to use to bring about all of His promises. And Mark's book is going to tell us to respond by following Jesus. We see that even in, in John, the, his messenger. Now, I want you to notice verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now what I want you to notice is that verse 2 begins as it is written or you might have in some translations just as it is written. And then drop down to verse 4 it says John the Baptist appeared. Now it doesn't mean that he dropped out of, you know, appeared out of thin air. Appeared here means appeared like made a speaking engagement appearance. You know, he went to the wilderness and began preaching. That's what uh, the English word here appeared means to say. But I want you to notice the connection. You, get, you lose this if you, if you read this. You get so far away from the as because of the quotation interrupting that you miss the fact that it says, as it is written, John the Baptist appeared. So John the Baptist's coming on the scene is the result of the fulfillment of God's promise that He would send someone ahead of His man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who would come. And this is the particular moment in history that He's doing it. What it shows us is that God is in control of history and He is bringing about His plan. Now, let's take a look at the quotation. I think this is an interesting point. He says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark identifies this as coming from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah is one of the favorite prophets of the New Testament writers. The Psalms are way up there in terms of how often things get quoted, but Isaiah is another favorite of New Testament authors. And small wonder, Isaiah uh, is such a fantastic book that has so much in it related to God's promises for Israel. Now these words are like threads woven together that touch several other parts of the Scriptures. And I want to pull on those threads just a second, show you where the trail leads. Part of, the, part of what Mark cites is Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is why he says it's from Isaiah. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the, make ready the Lord, make His paths straight. But another part of this, what introduces the quotation Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, comes from at least three passages in the Old Testament. One of them is Exodus 23.20. Now this is the surprise about this. You notice I've substituted the word angel here for the word messenger. 
That's because in Greek and Hebrew, both biblical languages that are used, uh, the word angel and the word messenger are the same word. We just translate them differently uh, when we've decided, when we're reading a, a text and we say, well, this must be talking about an angelic being, so we'll translate this angel. Uh, or maybe if we've decided that this, this word isn't talking about an angel, it's talking about a person, we'll just translate it messenger. But it's the same word. Okay, now you see, what I'm, you see what I'm getting at here is that in Exodus chapter 23 verse 20, God promises Israel that He's going to send His angel ahead of them who will prepare their way. Now this is the same kind of thing that Malachi picks up on as well. He says, behold, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. But also Malachi 4.5 says, behold, I am sending Elijah to you. Here's a messenger before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So you see what Mark has done? He's taken two Old Testament texts with a theme of wilderness. And he's looking back to Exodus chapter 23, to Israel's past. And he's looking forward to Israel's future in Malachi 3 and 4 and Isaiah 40. Now, Mark simplifies things, so he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. He couldn't say, well, I'm drawing from three different Old Testament texts here. Let me tell you about the... He's a man of action. He wants to get right to it, he says. And then, and so he just says it's from Isaiah because Isaiah is his main focus. Now, future, of course, for Mark... And for other people who are waiting expectantly for the return of the Lord, or the coming of the Lord, uh, is for them future, but for us past. This promise has been fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist who plays the role of Elijah. John is looking into God's promises John the Baptist is looking there and realizing that he is the person. God leads him to be the person to herald the coming Lord, the King of Israel, the Son of David. And so the wilderness is where the exodus happens, where God's deliverance comes. And Israel is, in a manner of speaking, God's Son. Hosea 11.1 1 says that uh, Israel is God's son in that sense, uh, in the sense of the nation being so closely related to God that he's like a son to me. But it's funny that Jesus, who is Mr. Israel, if you will, what's figuratively true of Israel in the Old Testament is literally true of Jesus in the New Testament. So, when the scripture says, my son, we're talking about Jesus, he's literally God's son. And God often repeats in Jesus' life what happened in the history of Israel. So, if there's a forerunner for Israel in the Exodus, and then that promise, that theme is taken up in the prophets, he says there's going to be a forerunner to the Lord coming, then it all fits together.
But Israel had rebelled. Israel had broken the covenant. And God kept sending prophets to them to say, Hey, guys, you've broken the covenant. Yahweh is not pleased with you. And they said, yeah, yeah. God kept, sending, kept on sending prophets to them and saying, look, you guys don't get it. Uh, eventually, the prophet Ezekiel says, okay, you guys are so proud of the temple. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. The glory of the Lord is going to depart from the temple, and you guys are going to be in a world of hurt. Okay, that's my... That's my paraphrase of a vast section of Ezekiel, okay? <laughs> the glory of the Lord, His presence, His protection, withdraws from the temple, leaves Jerusalem, and exposes the nation to divine discipline. But you know, one day, the glory of the Lord was supposed to return to the temple. And so in Malachi 3.1 it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's an interesting text because I think Mark may be thinking of this when he's citing Malachi. Because later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes to the temple Chapter 11, he comes to the temple. And uh, there's the fig tree there that's not producing fruit. He curses the fig tree and then goes and cleanses the temple. See the connection? Jesus is coming back to the temple. He's looking at Israel like a fig tree. And they're not producing fruit. So he says, I'm going to cleanse this temple. So Jesus keeps on doing these kinds of things that are, that are like what the prophets did and like what God did in earlier times. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. We're waiting for the return of Jesus to the temple when John appears. And this is why he appears in the wilderness. Because that's where Isaiah 40 verse 3 says this is going to happen. Verse 4 of our text, John the, wilderness appeared in the, John, sorry, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now it's important to notice this chain of words. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You have to pay close attention because it's repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins, not the baptism. The cause of forgiveness is repentance. Baptism is an outward sign, an outward expression or a ritual expression of that reality. So what uh, the text is calling for is repentance. You know, it seems to be a lost art these days, doesn't it? It seems uh, real repentance is rare now in public life. I, I think it's just about every 
week, you can't avoid this. You turn on the news and, and there's some celebrity who's gotten into, pro, into trouble, some entertainer or sports figure, you name it. You know, the, the hotel room is trashed or car, car is crashed or something, something silly. And then this celebrity, entertainer, whatever, posts an apology on social media in 160 characters or less. And there must be a special celebrity template that they're all using because I'm afraid it's always some variation on, I'm sorry that so many people are offended. What a non-apology that is. See, I think we can learn something very invaluable about repentance and forgiveness from C.S. Lewis. And uh, <clears throat> before that, we need to be in the wilderness here. There's the wilderness. Look at that. These are pictures of the Judean wilderness. It's desert. Beautiful place, but harsh and unforgiving. This is why you need God's provision when you're in the wilderness. But we can learn something valuable from looking at the wilderness. We can learn also from the Gospel of Mark elsewhere where this, uh, this theme, wilderness, appears. Is Jesus goes to pray there. In 135. In 145, Jesus withdraws to the wilderness. In 635, he feeds 5,000 people. In 84, he feeds 4,000 people. And there's even the comparison to Moses that seems to be there. But I want you to see something else, too. In Mark 13, 14, in the whole discussion about the temple, where Jesus is talking about the future of Israel and the future of the temple, he uses a term called the abomination of desolation. That's from Daniel. And I think we would miss it if, we, uh, if we're just reading this in English, we see the word wilderness, but we don't see the word desolation. But they're the same word. In other words, the word wilderness is a desolate place, a deserted place. And so this abomination that causes desolation that Jesus is talking about, which will happen in the future, which will entail the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Beautiful temple complex. Destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Now, these are pictures from the first century. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but uh, that's what's left of, of the temple. And that, and that western wall. You see, we can either go to the wilderness ourselves or God will come and make our world a wilderness this is why we need repentance. And this is why C.S. Lewis will help us. Finally, we, we found him. Uh, 
C.S. Lewis says this, and not in 160 characters, so bear with me. I'll, I'll, uh, it's, it's a little long for a quotation, but I think you will, you will uh, pick up on this. But he's British, so pay attention closely because he has a way of writing. Now, it seems to me that we often make a mistake both about God's forgiveness of our sins and about the forgiveness we're told to offer to other people's sins. Take it first about God's forgiveness. I find that when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality, unless I watch myself very carefully, asking Him to do something quite different. I am asking Him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there's all the world of difference, and there's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything will be between us will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says. I see that you couldn't help it, or didn't mean it, you weren't really to blame. If one was not really to blame, there is nothing to forgive. So when you ask forgiveness, you're admitting you're wrong, and God will forgive you. But if you're offering an excuse... You're saying, I'm not responsible. I'm really not guilty. Yes, I did that, but I'm not guilty of it. You see the distinction? We've begun, begun to be too pedantic, haven't we, in our modern world about how, well, I was just born that way. We're all born that way, by the way. That doesn't excuse anything. So, what John is calling for in verse 4, a repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins, is simply an honest admission that we've sinned. Now, here's the surprise. We can't do anything to earn forgiveness. And God knows the depth of our sin. What He wants is for us to take responsibility rather than make excuses. Ultimately, that's what repentance means. It means saying, hey, I know God has a way of dealing with this. Now, here's the nice part about it, is that the repentance leads to forgiveness of sins, not further punishment, not condemnation. God loves you even though you've sinned. And there's nothing, there's no sin that you can commit that, that God will, will make you, God love you less for it, will there? That also means there's nothing you can do that will make God love you more. It's God who's accomplished all the work of, of forgiving you. He's, he's the one who sent Jesus to the cross. So, wilderness 
is where we go for the forgiveness of sins. Now verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were, be, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Notice that they have to confess their sins being baptized by John. And in being baptized by John, they're identifying themselves with this message. I'm preparing the way. I'm getting things right. I'm getting people ready for God to arrive. And then verse 6 says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Fortunately, we aren't commanded to eat this diet. I could do with the wild honey. The honey would be okay, but the locusts, maybe the honey was on locusts, and that's why he was eating it. Anyway, locusts are one of the things that are said to, by, the, uh, by the law um, to be clean. That is, you can eat those. Uh, in Leviticus 11.22, it says, you can eat locusts. I don't, I don't know if it should say, uh, you may not want to do this, but you can eat locusts. But anyway, there were strict dietary laws of the, in the Old Testament, and locusts were part of the possibility. But even more to the point, Zechariah 13.4 talks about the hairy garment of a prophet. And... Uh, in 2 Kings, uh, long story, I'll cut to the chase in 2 Kings, but Elijah is described as a hairy man who had a leather belt tied around his waist. And uh, most people, when they look at this passage and look at this description of prophet's garment, Elijah is described as a hairy man, but he may be wearing a hairy shirt as well. Uh, and camel hair, by the way, uh, is, is a rugged kind of cloth, not the kind of camel hair that we'd, you'd see today. So John himself is in line with the Old Testament prophets. You see, he's wearing the clothes. He's dressed like a prophet. And in particular, he's dressed like Elijah. Now, I admit it, it you don't have to connect him to Elijah just because of his clothes because those are the kinds of clothes you'd wear if you lived in places you had to be uh, traveling around in the wilderness. But there is a connection to Elijah later in the book uh, and that's why we can, we can look back to this passage and say, here's John, he's saying by the way he's dressed, look, I'm Elijah. I'm fulfilling the, the role of Elijah. So John is identified by his clothing and diet as the messenger of God. And he's different from the rest of his culture, isn't he? And I think we can learn from John how to be different. Now, I don't mean that we all have to wear camel hair clothes and leather belts. That would look pretty, pretty weird. The point isn't about weirdness or being different just for the sake of being weird or being different, but we have to be different 
from our society in order to make a difference. We can't simply go along with what everyone else is doing and expect to have an impact in our world. Romans 12, 1-3 says that we should not allow ourselves to be conformed to this world, but to renew our minds. Now John says in verse 7, he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. See, the wilderness experience allows John to put his own role into perspective. He has a humility. And he says he's not worthy to untie the strap of the sandals. You know about foot washing. Uh, Bruce has taught us about foot washing in John 13 especially. But you know how when you have to wash somebody's feet, you have to take their sandals off. Now, washing someone's feet, of course, is a menial task, isn't it? And so John says, I'm not worthy to wash Jesus' feet. Well, no, that's not quite it. It's, I'm not worthy to even do the preparatory step to washing his feet. It's it's even more picturesque. And then he says that one is coming after me who is stronger He's identifying Jesus as the stronger man, as the one with power. And you will see, if you read through the book of Mark, the first thing that Jesus does, one of the first things that Jesus does is an exorcism. He casts out a demon. Jesus is the stronger man who's coming into the strong man's stronghold and throwing him out. Jesus is demonstrating not only that he has the power to say what he says, but the power to do what he says he will do. And then verse 8, he says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John contrasts his own baptism with that of Jesus. He says, I'm using water. Jesus is going to give you the Spirit. The, The following bit of the passage, verses 9 through 15, is going to tell us now about Jesus. In those days, verse 9, Jesus came up from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now you notice how uh, Mark has been careful to distance uh, John's baptizing other people from his baptism of Jesus. And this is why. Jesus doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to confess sins. So he's not repenting. He's identifying himself with John's message. He's saying, what this man says is true. You all need to prepare yourselves. Verse 10 tells us why this is the case. Immediately, coming up out of the heaven, out of the water, sorry, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. The fact that the Spirit comes on Jesus shows that He is the one to reveal who God is. The fact that the Spirit comes on Jesus at His baptism means that Jesus is the one who is able to baptize using the Holy Spirit, which He will do in Acts chapter 2. And the voice came from heaven, 
You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, I had Eric read uh, Isaiah 42, the opening part of that. Could have had him read a bunch of other passages from Isaiah. It was a real struggle to decide what the scripture reading would be for this morning. <clears throat> but there are four key places in Mark's gospel where Jesus is identified as the Son of God. The title of the book, here in verse 11, and then two other places that we haven't seen. One of them is at the Transfiguration, where the voice from heaven says, This is my Son. And then the fourth place is at the Crucifixion. See how, the, see how surprising that is? You know, Jesus is here on the cross, and the Roman centurion watching him die says, Surely this man was the Son of God. If something gets repeated at key places, you know that's the author's intention to say, This man is the Son of God. Immediately, verse 12, the Spirit impelled him to go out in the wilderness. And here we are again in the wilderness. It's not only the place where John is operating, it's the place where people go to get right with God. It's where Jesus goes, but He goes to the wilderness because He is right with God. He doesn't need to get right with God. He is. And so, because He goes to the wilderness, God is using Jesus in the way he did Israel. I like to call it dramatic reenactment. You know, here's, here's John the Baptist. He appears. He's wearing the clothes of, of Elijah the prophet. He says, hey, the guy is coming. So another dramatic reenactment. Jesus in the wilderness is like Israel in the wilderness. He says, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. There it is, the number 40. Forty days in the wilderness corresponds to forty years in the wilderness for Israel. So what happens in Israel's past is what happens in Jesus' experience. And it further identifies him. Forty days tempted by Satan, he was with wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now that shows you right there that, that Jesus doesn't need to get right with God, that the angels were ministering to him. But notice, in the wilderness he was tempted by Satan... And he was with the wild beasts. That again, wild beasts is emphasizing the wilderness nature of, of Jesus' activity. <clears throat> See, Mark is so much a man of action that he just he glosses over the, the temptation event. He, you know, Mark and Luke have this extended discussion, this one-on-one -on -one fight with Jesus and the devil. Mark just says, hey, I'm moving on. Uh, but Mark shows you by what Jesus does that Jesus passed the test. Because like I said earlier, the first thing he does, first miracle he does, 123 to 28, Jesus performs an exorcism. It shows you that Jesus is the authentic Son of God and he has authentic teaching. So John's mission in the wilderness was to prepare the way for Jesus who's rode in life took him into the wilderness as well. Verse 14 and 15, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee 
preaching the gospel of God. The text says, when John was arrested or handed over, um, imprisoned, uh, in chapter 6, verses 17 to 29, we learn the rest of the story that Herod Antipas had thrown John into prison. Now, Herod Antipas was one of Herod the Great's sons. And Herod Antipas was like any other Greco-Roman ruler, had the same uh, loose morals that many of them did. He divorced his wife and then married his niece, who was the wife of his still-living brother, Philip. <clears throat> There's one for the celebrity magazines. <laughs> and Herod Antipas was the man who the Romans had put in charge of Galilee. When Herod the Great died, uh, his kingdom got split up and, and Galilee went to Herod Antipas. So here's Jesus, after John is imprisoned, coming into Galilee, preaching the gospel. It's like he's going into the territory uh, of the, the man who ultimately murdered John the Baptist. So Jesus is not afraid to confront God's enemies on their own turf. And so Mark ends his account of John's ministry for now because he wants to show this close connection. John was handed over. Oh no, what's going to happen to Jesus? He'll be handed over. When you follow Jesus, you might be handed over too. And that's a very real possibility for the reader of the Gospel of Mark. I dare say for most of our Christian brethren scattered through the world, it is. There may come a time when you and I might be handed over. I pray it won't, but it might happen. Jesus says in verse 15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we've come full circle from the, starting with the gospel and verse 15, we're ending the passage with Jesus preaching the gospel. It's the continuation of the same end times message that John had been preaching. <clears throat> Notice what he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a key milestone in God's history. God's prophetic plan is set in motion. The person of the kingdom, the king, has arrived. And he's going to tell us about the kingdom, especially in the parables in, say, chapter 4 of Mark, for instance. He's beginning the work of building the kingdom. And he calls disciples. Right after this passage, he goes on and he gathers the, the disciples together, the twelve who are going to be his, his staff, if you will. But you have to keep reading the gospel because... The kingdom doesn't work out the way people expect it to. Uh, Jesus doesn't arrive on the scene and then suddenly wipe out the Romans. 
Jesus arrives and is crucified. Wait a minute. I thought the king was here. You know, everyone should be saying, hey, welcome. But no, it didn't work out that way. Now, some people did repent, and the people in verse 5 are an encouragement to us. But, but John is handed over to wicked men, and so is Jesus. He says, believe in the gospel. The call to believe in Jesus is a call to follow him. And we'll wind it down with this. Calling them to himself... Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does going to the wilderness look for, like for us? I've been talking about that, but let me just make sure that you understand it's not being weird or dressing in a camel hair shirt or wearing a leather belt. It's not even withdrawing geographically. The early church, some, some in the early, well, later church, we could say, 5th, 6th centuries, and so on. Tried the whole withdrawal from society thing. It's called the monastic movement. And uh, they didn't enjoy much success, I think, in, in uh, influencing their society. Now, what I mean by withdrawing to the wilderness for us is that we put ourselves in the wilderness in the way we think. We take on the wilderness mindset while we live in the world. See, our task is to be ready for the Lord's return. And we need to take on that same attitude of humility and faithfulness that John the Baptist had as we wait for Jesus to come. Our focus needs to be completely on Jesus' greatness. Now, I cannot talk about the gospel without actually telling you what it is. So let me tell you what it is. The good news is that Jesus came to this earth fully God and fully man, went to the cross and died for all of our sins, past, present, and future, which means that to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in Him, is the only thing that will make you right with God because Jesus was the only one who could take that punishment on himself. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for us. The only step that's necessary for anyone is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the moment of eternal life for anyone who will receive it. <laughs> 